Anyway. Speaking of fake websites, everyone head over to SimonCowellEbikeTips.com. It's one of my favorite new websites. Oh, it's so good. Out there. So good. So good. Welcome back to another episode of the Cycling Tips Nerd Alert podcast after, well, I think it's been a solid hour of various delays here between uh, waiting for my wife to come home from Costco and Dave's audiovisual issues and, uh, and and Zach trying to actually make money, seeing as how we are using, or I guess you and Kaylee and, and Zach are using his shop space. We now still finally have the usual crew on hand today, socially distanced, all together here, however, on this lovely little video chat. Dave Rome, in addition to having to buy yourself a new Zoom recorder and microphone and stuff like you should have done months ago, tell us about your latest tool purchase. What, what did you buy today within the last hour? What you got? Today? Oh, I actually did buy a tool within the last 24 hours. Uh, there's one on Kickstarter, which is out of Italy, um, and it's a, a set of uh, precision screwdrivers with like a, a ceramic bearing and like a brass counterweight which you just spin and it's like, it looks amazing. I, I won't lie, I was sold on the promotional video. Um, but I just, you know, once you hear that, it's like it's never going into production unless you buy it on Kickstarter. You kind of like, that's the right time to buy a new tool. I have a challenge for our listeners. If you can create a fake tool that you can somehow convince Dave Rome to try to buy, I will... You can have my money. <laughs> We'll we'll feature you on a future episode of the Nerd Alert podcast. You can you can have a half hour to explain to us your genius and tricking Dave Rome into a fake Kickstarter. I mean, it seems like shiny. Put a ceramic bearing in it, and then you're good to go. Yep. Like what what would you what would it do? Like I think maybe like a. I mean, it could just be the same tool that he has a million of already, and just a fancier version, and good to go. Pretty much. Pretty so, much. Fun. Fun side story, uh, years and years and years ago when I was working for Bike Radar, uh, I wrote up a, a fake April Fool's article talking about this new product that uh, was launching, I think out of Australia. No, I, I think it was launching out of Colorado. And it was um, basically a do-it-yourself carbon wrap kit. This is kind of when like you know carbon-wrapped aluminum components were all big. And I, I wrote up this fake article saying that like you, know, you could just buy it and do it yourself. And you know, the pictures I showed were basically just like that old carbon print vinyl sticker stuff that I had pretty sloppily wrapped around an old Trek 1200 bonded aluminum frame. And it, it worked really well because it was a great frame for it because it was like, you know, totally round tubes and like, you know, clean, clean joints and everything. And someone actually called up the owner of the bike shop that I was working in part time at the time because I named the product after the shop owner. And this person somehow tracked us down, uh, called from Australia. I believe he was from Australia and asked how to actually buy this product. And was his name Dave Rome? <laughs> no, it was not no. me. I mean, it could have been he, April Fool's though, like, If he's in Australia, it could have been a different day. It That's true. It's April 2nd already. That is, that is true. But I, but, I think, but I think they called a couple days later. And I even wrote in the article that, that this product, you know, not only made, made, uh, not only made whatever you stuck on there stiffer, but it also made it lighter. Oh, by adding material, you make it lighter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Science. I, I remember that article. Didn't you have it link off to like a fake website? Uh, no, that was, was a that, another, that was a different one. That was one. when I that was oh, when okay. I created a company called Carbon Copy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's when I had a friend of mine create a fake website for us. But anyway, speaking of fake websites, everyone head over to SimonCowellEbikeTips.com. It's one of my favorite new websites. Oh, it's so good out there. So good, so good. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Kaylee, what are we going to do if this wildfire smoke keeps getting worse? Are we going to be stuck uh, riding inside? What's the deal here? I don't ride inside. I'll just take more naps. It'll mm-hmm. be great. Yep. Nah, it's unfortunate. Makes for good sunsets. I really do. Uh, I'm thinking of the firefighters. There's lots of them over there right now. But yeah, we get some big fires here in Colorado. It is fire season, and it's blowing tons of smoke into Boulder, and it's super gross. And actually, Zach and I had to call off our ride this morning as a result because it was real bad. Yeah, but, and I, I, I kind of wish I had called off my ride this morning. Yeah, nasty. Hmm. I've heard it's clear past Breckenridge. You can go ride in Breck and not there you go. inhale all the smoke. Oh, good. I'll, 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 be sure, I'll be sure to do that before breakfast, except right now. Well, actually, <laughs> I, yep. I, guess we can, I guess we can get to Breck because the highway's not closed there. Yeah. Anyway, Zach, I got a question for you. Mr. Yeah. Ace Pro Mechanic of the Boulder Groupetto and also the only mechanic of the Boulder Groupetto, seeing as That's your, me. It, it's your company. He's the best yeah. and the worst. <laughs> indeed, <Yeah>. indeed. <laughs> Employee I, of the month. <laughs> I, I, I got to ask you about that Venge that we recently featured in a Bikes of the Bunch article you know, belonging yeah. to ex-soldier Rocco Orlando, who, as it turns out, just happened to stop by your shop a few minutes ago, which was one of the reasons- our podcast. Which, which was one of our interruptions. <laughs> so I always wonder kind of how this works. Like, does he just- drop off his stuff and then kind of just like leave it to you to do whatever you think is necessary and then he just kind of like pays the bill like whatever it happens to be like how does that work with him he doesn't uh, really seem he doesn't really seem I like mean, a guy who is too concerned about like nickel and diming you yeah i mean it's definitely more of i guess long-term project thing because everything like like that bike for example everything was custom painted so it's should probably start talking about doing it a month or so before getting a frame and then we get the frame or a bike and strip it down and then take to the painter and then decide what parts we want to put on it and then slowly get everything in because paint doesn't happen overnight and then build it up. He's got an SL7 hanging in the in the stand already. Yep. Yep. Hmm. So so he's added to the added to the stable since we made that yeah. <laughs> since we made that video <laughs> and that well, story. Yeah. Well Kelly, it's it's a good thing. I'm sure he was thrilled to read your SL7 write up when you said that the Venge was dead, seeing as how he had just <laughs> spent all that money on a custom painted Venge. <laughs> He has ridden the SL7 already and said that they do complement each other nicely. Yep. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yep. Okay. I agree with him. I think that the Venge should continue to live. And Julian Alphilippe agrees. He finished MSR on it. We'll ignore the fact that he flatted, but he finished MSR on the Venge. So yep. it's Whatever. clearly he faster. He lost. It, you know, he he would have won if he was on a tarmac, right? That's he marketing. Well, <laughs> no, no. He, he, he would have lost if he was on a Venge. It's a slight uphill clearly. Yeah. Obviously. No, oh, we're not going to talk about that because that that is that is a rabbit hole we're not going to get into. Yes, because speaking we of paying, paying the bills, that hole. yes, speaking of paying the bills, we do have a sponsor today. We do have an ad. Kaylee, who who is sponsoring today's episode? Today's episode of Nerd Alert is brought to you by Flow Bikes. You may have noticed that bike racing is back. Flow Bikes is your home for live and on-demand coverage of the biggest events of the year, including the Giro d'Italia. Toro Flanders, Anstel Gold Race, Toronto Adriatico, and much, much more. Go behind the scenes with exclusive interviews, in-depth documentaries, and host of other cycling-focused content. Additionally, Canadian viewers can get access to the Tour de France, Vuelta a España, Liège Best on Liège, Paris-Roubaix, and more. Sign up today by going to flowbikes.com slash cyclingtips. And when you purchase a Flowbike subscription, you'll get access to the entire Flow Sports network of over 25 other sports. Do not miss out. Sign up at flowbikes.com slash cycling tips. This is the best way to watch bike racing almost anywhere in the world. Hmm. Side note, the middle of that ad with the behind the scenes content and exclusive interviews is mostly done by 
former colleague of mine and good friend Gregor Brown. So another reason to sign up for Flow Bikes because Gregor, who we call Ron Burgundy, is fantastic. <laughs> well, that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. More, more importantly, how do I get a comp account? How do I get a comp account for Flow Bikes? Because I don't have a Flow Bikes account right now. You got to pay, yep, pay for it. Come on, come on now. <laughs> Man. All right, well... When you are not watching bike racing on flow bikes, hopefully you're out actually riding your bike, like outside. And given how everything's been going in the bike industry lately, in the drop bar world at least, chances are good that you've been riding off tarmac. And you might have even caught wind in the new bike that really just announced today. So let's get into the news. So if you are familiar with the Ridley Noah Fast Aero Road Bike, this new gravel bike, the Kanzo Fast, <laughs> is basically a Noah Fast in gravel form, complete with the same aero profiles, Clearance for 700 by 42 millimeter tires and with geometry borrowed from the from the company's Kanzo Speed carbon gravel all-rounder, which is not as fast as the Kanzo Fast, which is not at all confusing. Wait, so fast is faster than speed? Yes. Obviously. Speed is yes. slower than fast. Well, because, I mean, it's just a speed, right? It could, uh -huh. I mean, speed could be slow. Could right? be any speed. It doesn't specify right. what speed, Spe yeah. Speed, <laughs> yeah. speed could be casually ambling along, right? <laughs> but... <laughs> It sounds very, it sounds very, very Belgium. But yeah. regardless of the specifics of this bike, I'm kind of curious though because Ridley's making a big deal of this thing being an aero gravel bike, and they are falsely, I should add, claiming that it's the first aero. Uh, they are claiming falsely, I should add, that it's the first aero carbon gravel bike, which it's not. I believe 3T and Cervelo, among probably a few others, would probably take issue with that. Uh, but I'm kind of curious. I mean, one of the things that Ridley said during this presentation is that, you know, quote, everyone wants to go faster, unquote. Is that really the case? Or like, is this kind of more of a situation where like the road racing mentality is sort of just bleeding into the gravel world like we predicted it would eventually? Yeah. I mean, certainly some people want to go faster. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I don't really want to go faster when I'm, when I'm on my gravel bike. And if I did, I, I don't know if I'd really get like a actual gravel bike i mean i don't know like it, it's this thing's kind of funny right because i just uh i have a, one of those cervello caledonias in right now which is also kind of aero shaped and stuff like that and is according to them just a road bike but also fits a 35 millimeter tire i put one in there barely barely but it fits a 35 millimeter tire which is like a gravel tire right i mean that's literally there's a specialized diverge that that what was the original aluminum specialized diverge fit a 36 right yeah <laughs> like barely fit more more tire than that and that was at least at the time considered a gravel bike so i don't know like if, if speed is your thing you're probably not running a huge tire and generally and uh there's probably lots of options out there of these sort of new endurance road or all road type bikes that will fit a 34 35 and have aero cues and things like that and yeah i don't know I, not not to you know not to diss Ridley or anything like that, but I'm just I find this bike relatively uninspiring because it's not really the type of gravel that I personally am interested in. I mean, I feel like yeah, the saying is smooth is fast, and the aero gravel bike yes. doesn't sound smooth to me. It no. Sounds very rough. <laughs> <laughs> sounds real <Yeah>. bumpy. <laughs> that's that's what I was going to say. Is you know if I was looking to go faster on the gravel, I'd be looking first at ways to keep me uh, comfortable in the saddle for longer. You know that. That lets me pedal through rougher sections and, you know, just keep a smooth pedal stroke going and, you know, keep my momentum going without having to, you know, jump in and out of the saddle. Um, and, yeah, basically what Zach said. 
aero bikes, you know, it's still there's still some trade-offs there. Yeah, it's like maybe faster in a wind tunnel, but maybe not faster in the real world. I mean, I remember uh, a yeah. former coworker of mine at Bike Radar and former Vela News Tech editor, Matt Pasoka. Uh, he was a very accomplished uh, amateur cyclocross racer. And I remember he... I remember he told me once that uh, one of his favorite cross racer, uh, one of his favorite cross racing bikes ever uh, was an old time, which was very much not the stiffest and certainly was well, well before anyone cared about aero anything. Um, but he said he loved it most because, you know, he could go fast on it because it was super, super smooth. Like he could just stay seated and keep the power going longer. And, you know, in that sort of capacity, then, you know, that bike actually was the fastest and it, you know, I'm sure it was probably just a big air break in a wind tunnel, but you know, that's what worked. So not yeah. great for eight hour long gravel races. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. And which was is kind of like funny for new sprint gravel races that are like 45 to 60 minutes long, take place in a park. You're just constantly accelerating and comfort maybe, is less of an issue. Maybe have some sprint barriers in between they have to jump over. Cycle across is what some would call it. Gravel across. Gra <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Of a sand pit, they just make a gravel pit. <laughs> All right. I well, think we just invented, we just reinvented cyclocross, and yeah. we're gonna get everybody stoked on on gravel across again. Yeah. So should we? Should so we? I'm not, I've not actually seen this bike yet. Does it have the split fork? Where there's like no, it doesn't. It does not have the split fork. But oh, if it did, if it did have the split fork, you could probably say something that like you know actively evacuates mud and debris away from your wheels to keep everything cleaner. <laughs> yeah. And you could have you know cool. you could, you could have an animation that shows like. You know, a bunch of dirt just just being sucked away from the middle of the bike, and and everything will be clean. It'll be great. Opportunities lost. What well, wasn't uh, the most interesting thing about this bike? Actually, just the rear hub, though. It was which is something so we was, talked about was, a little bit before. I was just about to get to that. So, regardless of you know this bike's supposed aero qualities and that sort of thing, uh, what's really interesting is that rear hub because this thing has well, this bike has no provision for a front derailleur whatsoever. But yet it's not totally really limited to one by drivetrains. I mean, it kind of is, but it isn't. Dave, can you explain this to us, please? So this this bike uh, is using the Classified Rear Hub, which is a new brand, a new Belgium company, uh, offering what is effectively a two-by internal geared hub, which then fits a cassette on the outside. So the idea itself isn't brand new. SRAM have done something similar. Uh, James was another company doing something similar in the 90s, I believe, maybe. But uh, yeah, the idea that they've they've come out with is is one that's quite modern. It's it's wireless electronic shifting to to shift the the two speed rear hub, and uh, it's kind of cool actually. It lets you use a regular size cassette, so like a you know 1130, 1132, uh, and basically get a a two by range out of that without having to have a front derailleur or chainring. Yeah, I mean they they're they're claiming that it shifts in 150 milliseconds, which is really fast, and also that you can shift it on un, uh, under full load, uh, and they said they've tested it up to a thousand watts and with basically no degradation in performance, which is super impressive. And since it physically is a one by drivetrain with one chain ring, you theoretically don't really have to worry about your chain falling off as much anyway. Um, like you don't have to deal with a lot of the 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 weird weirdness that goes along with regular two by drivetrains. So, I mean, it sounds promising, but right now it only comes on this bike because they are not selling it aftermarket yet. So if this has been tried or versions of this have been tried before, why did they stop? What was the problem? Were they, were, did they cause drag or something? I mean, the SRAM version, the I think it was called dual drive, was very much made for townie bikes, not. Mm. So it added like, 
15 pounds to your bike. Not really 15 pounds, but a lot. Yeah, so it was not performance oriented. So in terms of weight, uh, in terms of weight, they're saying that uh, a one by drivetrain fitted with this hub and a Shimano GRX DI2, you know, other bits uh, is basically the exact same weight as a conventional Shimano GRX DI2 two by drivetrain, which is pretty interesting. And then in this particular build, Ridley uses a rotor Aldo crankset. And supposedly, with uh, if you do a straight straight comparison, that component build ends up being 70 grams lighter than you would otherwise get with a GRX DI2 drivetrain, which is pretty cool. Can you imagine how low of a gear you'd have if you had a two by setup with SRAM Eagle with a 1052? You could climb up a wall. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you you would actually be pedaling so so high. You'd be pedaling so fast that you'd be going backwards. Yeah, just <laughs> so much gear. Yeah, but I mean, there. Yeah. So, do we like this? I guess this is. I guess this is the question. Like, is this? I I really like the idea of this. I mean, I have. I do still have a lot of questions. I mean, you know, classified. They do have. A, they do have a website where they put a fair bit of information out. Uh, Ridley kind of added some more information this morning, but there are still some questions that we have about it. Again, like we have no idea how much this thing is going to cost aftermarket and when it might be available aftermarket. Um, the, the, the cassette interface is completely proprietary. It's on like this sort of conical shaped free hub body thing. That's, that's totally custom to classified and they're making, yeah, as, as Dave mentioned, they're making four different sizes of cassettes. The cassettes are each milled from a single block of steel. So they kind of made like the, the, the SRAM high-end cassettes, but you have to buy a classified cassette and who knows how well that part shifts. Is Ridley's reasoning for not having a front trailer mount because of aero reasons? Uh, you know, they didn't really say this morning. And That's classified. Know, oh, oh, you were waiting for that one. Fire. I mean, the thing is, I mean, the, the idea of one buy is, I mean, there's a reason why it keeps popping up. I mean, it, it has a lot of merit especially for gravel stuff, just for the simplicity and, you know, mud clearance and the additional tire clearance you get by just kind of removing all that stuff up there. Um, so I guess if you can have that and still retain tighter jumps in the cassette that you would get with a two by system and still get the total range that you would get without having to, you know, go with a conventional two by drivetrain, then yeah, that sounds so the, pretty cool. The to idea me. of it is that you run a more of a road size cassette with the one by. Uh, well, one thing that they note is that their smallest yep. sprocket on any cassette is an 11. So they have no need to go to a 10 or a 9 because you still have all the like range. What, what is the cassette size that they're specking? Is it still like a 46 or something or is it like a 30? No, it's like a 30, 32. So like my immediate reaction like to that is most gravel one by derailers are not made for roadside cassettes. So that seems interesting. So if you're running like a clutchless rear derailleur because it's a road derailleur, with the one by that's not going to work very well. Well, hmm. no, but they, they still want you to run basically a gravel drivetrain. So what they're offering is uh, Ridley's offering this bike with uh, rival one rival one drivetrain or uh, GRX mechanical or GRX DI2 or this classified drivetrain. But in regardless of how you go with this classified setup, I mean, if, as far as I can tell, it has to be run right now with a Shimano DI2 setup because the wireless controller does have to plug into uh, a, an electronic lever to, to send mm. the signal to the hub. Gotcha. So there are some limitations there. So, I mean, it, it, they're, they're kind of already limiting what sort of bits this thing's going to work with anyway. I mean, is but, it, are we going to see this in like road racing sometime? You, you know, it's kind of funny because one of the ambassadors that classified brought on as part of the presentation this morning was Tom Bonin. And of course, Tom Bonin being a 
paid ambassador who presumably may even have stake in this company was saying that uh, he, of course, was saying how this sort of thing would be great to have in road racing um, for its you know, greater reliability. You would you know, presumably not really have to worry about dropped chains and you know, without having to deal with the stress that you put onto a chain during a front shift, especially when you're putting out a lot of power, you know, there is potentially the, the idea that you would have fewer broken chains in that situation I mean, as well. Didn't Boonin lose out on an opportunity to go for the like final of his last landers because he dropped his chain? Oh, weird. He may or may not have said explicitly that had he had one of these classified hubs that he may have won Flanders that year. Weird. <laughs> yeah. Huh. I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. That's a good point. But now you have like Altegra RX. Yeah. Clutch on there. And... I, I mean, you know, if it works as advertised and you can shift in a 150 milliseconds which basically is instantaneously then i'm trying to think what the downsides would be I mean, does this does this wheel how does it attach to the frame does it it's a like standard through axle standard 142 there, by 12 through like axle yeah. and, and then nope. no. and then their own through axle actually contains the wireless tra uh, wireless receiver and the battery rechargeable battery is in the through axle which is quite cool and there's no yeah. additional drag or anything like that coming out of the hub. I mean, that's always been sort of the issue with internals, right? Well, it, yes, yes and no. I mean, they they have set it up so that, so there's two ratios inside the hub. There's a one-to-one, -one, that's basically your high gear, and then a one-to-one point seven, or I guess point seven to one, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it. But that's your low gear. And the way they have set it up, um, there is essentially no additional friction in the one-to-one -one setting for the hub. And then you do obviously get a little bit more friction in the lower setting. Uh, they are claiming, you know, 99% efficiency, whatever that means in their context. Um, but, you know, they're saying basically that you have optimum efficiency or the same as you would normally have with any hub when you're running in the virtual big chain ring. And then you have a little bit more drag in the virtual little chain ring. But usually at that at that point, you're running lower speeds anyway. And, you know, the, the drag is not really as big of an issue. So what, what, what I've seen them say on that is that when you're in that smaller gear, if you are on a two by system and you use the smaller chain ring, then at that point you're getting uh, increased chain articulation and there is inherently more uh, drag in your system with a two by uh, and you're also cross chaining a little bit more, whereas their system you are able to stay in the bigger ring, you're able to stay in a bigger cog and the chain line is straighter and therefore those benefits um, balance out the losses in the hub. Of course, that remains to be seen, but the, yeah, I mean, it kind of, it doesn't sound like bullshit to me. I mean, it sounds mm. pretty cool. And apparently all the people who work at the company, they, they come from, they come from automatic, um, automotive transmission backgrounds, which makes complete sense um, because it kind of sounds in a lot of ways, like you know, it's almost, I mean, it, it's mechanically quite different, but in theory, it's almost kind of like a, like a dual clutch transmission that you would find in a car. Like same same benefit and same style of operation basically, but just very different mechanicals inside. But sounds neat. I mean, I certainly want to try one. So I guess we'll find out. Right. I mean, those bikes will supposedly be available starting September first. Um, and I don't know. I guess we should maybe get in line to see if we can get a test sample. So we'll find out. Hmm. Uh, yeah. I guess I'm just like it's pretty rare these days that something comes along in the drop bar world that has the potential to like actually change sort of the the functionality of the bikes that we ride. This is kind of the first thing I've heard of in a while that that sounds like a potential candidate. But at the same time, a tiny company like this is is going to struggle just from a business perspective. Like you almost expect them to get yep. get bought up by SRAM or bought up by Shimano or some of that. And then all of a sudden they're everywhere, right? Otherwise, it's going to be yeah. this uphill battle to make this thing work. And 
and maybe that's the whole point of this company, right? Like, you know, to get to get acquired is yeah. You know, sometimes the purpose of these smaller businesses. So, um, you know, Shram has a very strong history of acquisitions, and Shimano, you know, they have they've done a few in recent years as well. So, you know, perhaps that is the business strategy. Well, and right now they're probably being smart by partnering only with Ridley to start. So it's not like they're going to be a ton of units out in the field. So they're kind of just getting going and maybe, you know, taking a little bit more of a tentative start, probably smart to, to not just flood the market with a ton of product when you don't really know if they're completely proven in the mainstream. So I don't know. We'll see what happens. I, I like the idea of it. I, I would like for it to succeed. Yeah. Keep an eye on it. And, you know, it should be noted that in the presentation, they did say game changing or game changer or some sort of variation of that at least probably a dozen times. So clearly it's a game changer. Hmm. Is it going to change the game, though? Oh, I don't know. It's definitely a gear changer. Uh, hmm. Oh, God. How do you come up with those so quickly, Dave? I'm you sorry. <laughs> you know, what? What what is going to change the game completely, literally, literally change the game, Zwift. Kaylee, your favorite thing ever. Zwift has now added steering capability across the board for all courses and routes. So That's as right. long as as long as you spend about the hundred dollars or so that you need for the for the Elite Sturzo Smart Cradle for your front wheel, uh, you can now pick your lines through quarters virtually. Of course, you have to actually actively position yourself behind riders if you want to draft, and you can act, you know you can shake people off your wheel if you kind of wiggle back and forth across the road and your avatar no longer steers around or through people as you move through the pack can Very you crash no you still can't crash but but kaylee what happens if you could turn right when the road goes left uh you know i think you it's i think it's one of those things where you sort of just like keep bouncing off the left edge of the road like it won't really mm. let you like explore like Sounds whatever very realistic <laughs> what i what i would really like to do is like to be able to explore like just kind of like the fields and stuff that's in there like you know go for yeah. a little swim but like a little Grand Theft Auto, just like go roll yeah, around. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I mean, but Kaylee, given that you are our resident indoor cycling aficionado, love it. What What are your thoughts on this thing? Like, what What do you like? Do you think this is a good thing? What do you What do you wish it had that it maybe doesn't have right now? I wish that there it came with a guy who, if you screwed up, uh, would just come and push you off your bike in your living room. Oh, <laughs> I can make oh. that happen. <laughs> <laughs> just tip you over is no it? no I, like i i can't I, this is actually this is actually kind of cool like this is actually i mean I, my personal uh opinion of indoor riding is sort of irrelevant here because i just don't do it and i don't like it and i never will and i'm not apologizing for that anymore uh but if i was into it then uh, this would be this would be awesome. Like it's just one more thing to keep yourself occupied, right? I mean, it's one more thing to think about, one more thing to like try to perfect. You know, I I, I now imagine, you know, uh, well, Zach, you love you love F one for your Xbox. I do. You're it's always fun. telling me how well you did at the recent fake F one. Right. Well, the same as F one race. It's the same as you do FIFA. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. Well, my FIFA team is awesome. We just won the Champions League, so don't even talk to me. Uh, <laughs> no, like. And you like that because you get to try to go faster and faster and faster around this loop, right? And it's just a game. Yeah. And so anything that, that Zwift can do to continue to gamify its game. Crash. You can also crash. Which, that's one thing that Zwift should add to this, is if you screw up, your little dude should just fall on the ground and your smart trainer should, like, lock up. Question. Right? So, like, obviously this is one more thing to keep you entertained. But if you're Zwift racing, is this an advantage or a disadvantage? Like, one more thing to try and do and focus well, on or is it better to just let the dude draft automatically i personally think that 
for most people, it would be a big disadvantage for racing because like you said, right now Zwift does everything automatically if you don't have the steering function built in. So you can drop right in behind people if you're drafting off of them and, and like you don't have to worry about steering through corners and stuff. But I guess there is also the possible disadvantage or I guess there is also the possible advantage that if you really can shake people off of your wheel like you would in real life if someone's just kind of sucking your wheel back there, then that could be an advantage, I guess. But it seems like mostly you wouldn't really want to worry about that and you just want to like just put your head down and just bury yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think at first here, it's probably going to be quite simple, right? And it's just kind of a gimmick a bit. It's just something to entertain yourself. Yeah, like try to go around corners better, whatever. But as as Swift continues to improve, I mean, I could totally see, you know, steering only races where steering becomes part of the event and part of the skill set that you have to bring with, with it. Like you know, taking a good line through the corner. And, and, you know, Zwift could start to build this stuff into the game where if you take a bad line through the corner, it slows you down or it forces you to... Well, they already are. That's like part of the game now. You have to brake check. Yeah. Like if so, you take a long line, you should have to grab a handful of brake. Yeah, exactly. So, like, you know, if, if you make it... But if you add that kind of stuff to to like everyday racing is what I mean uh, that start that starts to be actually a lot more interesting for me uh, because I mean like the thing that I don't like to this day about Zwift racing is that it's still it's too much of an exercise contest and I know that hardcore Zwift racers will say no 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 there's a lot of tactics there's a lot exercise. of things you have to know but it's like stuff that you have that you can literally learn in you know a week it's not it's not real difficult it's not like real not tactics real and because the the drafting does not provide a big enough effect to most normal tactics are essentially nullified and or at least sort of severely diminished right uh and so yeah i, I I'm, I'm all for this and you know it doesn't mean i'm gonna ride inside but it, it you know i'm very well aware that a other people like swift more than i do B, a lot of people just have to ride inside. So anything that they can do to make Zwift better, I am 100% in favor of. Maybe they'll get to a point at some point where I'll hop on there happily in the wintertime instead of freezing my tushy off outside. But we're a little ways away from that. Can't wait for well, people to start turning by just rotating their handlebars rather than actually leaning. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think we can all, all I think we can all agree that people already do that anyway. Yeah. Not how you turn yeah, on a real no, bicycle outdoors. No. As, as it turns out, that's not how it's supposed to work. So moving on, for those of you who are more interested in riding outdoors and are still actually able to ride outdoors, thank you, coronavirus. Envy, makers of all these high-end carbon wheels, they're now getting into the tire game, which is not entirely surprising considering they've been teasing this for over a year now. So these new tires, they're calling them the, the SES. Uh, they're made by Tufo. They have this supposed balance of performance attributes, you know, like weight and rolling resistance and puncture protection. And, but they also have this funky shoulder tread that conveniently looks like the Envy logo, go figure, that supposedly makes the tire more aerodynamic because it makes the air like stick to the tire more as it transitions to the rim. Uh, okay. Sounds uh, like uh, well, I mean, I'm sure the the logo just. I mean, I'm sure it was pure coincidence that the logo is the aerodynamic pattern they came up with. I mean, it's, yeah, pure coincidence. I mean, my guess is that when they came up with this Envy logo years and years ago, which used to be Edge, by the way, and it had to be turned into Envy after a copyright violation, by the way. Uh, clearly, when they invented this thing, they had always thought of this, right? Like, it, it they designed it yep. based on aerodynamics, obviously. Their logo was formed in a wind tunnel. I mean, right? at right? Cycling Tips, we wind tunnel test all of our logos. 
Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, like, I'm sure that, you know, that it's, it's sort of like a tripwire effect, right? So it probably doesn't really matter what shape you have there. If you have a bit of a shape, then it probably does something. But I don't know. That sort of gets into this weird, sort of weird marginal gains territory that uh, I just yeah. want a tire that, like, won't flat and feels nice and is sticky and is pretty fast. But again, I'm probably, yeah. I'm per probably, pers probably none of us around this, this group here are actually the, the intended audience for that particular tire, I wouldn't think. We ride very high end tires, but but what? But I don't care about going variety that just are really grippy around corners. Yeah, I don't really care about going like a tiny, 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 tiny bit let's, faster. Let's be honest with the intended audience of this tire, though. It's it's envy wheel owners. So I feel like yes. the thing right? with that though, it's yeah. Like look at the only basically the only other company to really do this is Mavic, and they had their tubeless tires. That they sold with the wheels and they did go tubeless really really well but people don't want to run the tubeless tires of mavic they want to run the same continentals that they've ridden for ages or the same victoria or the same whatever like people yeah. are still it's a hard gonna ride their other tires and like with yeah. these even zip tires too. yeah zip does tires too and no one buys yeah. those like yeah and then these like why if why not just buy a tufo well, that's a good question. But here's here's the thing, though. So now, tufos, you know, we, we've been having... Well, yeah. If two foes are terrible, then why are these better? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I kind of wonder that myself. But but anyway, point, point being, you know, one of the things that Mavic didn't have to deal with back then and something that they were, didn't really talk about that much, you know, with, with rim shapes and, and that sort of thing and interfaces changing so much, and especially since Envy is really embracing this hookless design, um, you know, there has been these questions recently of tire and rim <laughs> compatibility. Oh, Wallace is now on the podcast. <laughs> Wallace, the shop dog. I, I don't know if you could hear that on the podcast, but Wallace what? says hello. I can hear a tail. What? What? <laughs> is, is that Wallace's tail? Yeah. Wallace's tail is flopping around. Yep. He just wants pets. He wants pets. He just came <laughs> over mid podcast for some pets. Wallace yep. is very soft. It's been quite a while since I've seen Wallace in person, but I do remember yep. him being very soft. <laughs> He's <Yep>. very soft. <laughs> He's getting the pets. He timed it well. Yeah. <laughs> well done, Wallace. Well done. Anyway, so Envy's offering these tires in four sizes, 25, 27, 29, and 31. And I think they actually are calling them C. But the thing that is really super cool about this whole thing uh, is that they are listing the actual tire sizes on the box and on the website on a range of inner rim widths. So like, if mm. you are buying a 27 SES Envy tire, it, you know, it'll say right in the package that this tire measures, you know, 27 on this width rim, 29 on this width rim, so on and so forth, which is awfully convenient given how, how variable tire sizing is right now. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, Zach sees how you install an awful lot of tires. Uh, how often do you install tires on someone's bike right now? And the tire ends up measuring pretty far off from what it says on the hot patch. Yeah. I mean, I would. Yeah, I would say almost all the time because most rims are wider now. But like you kind of expect that like, okay, this 28 mil tire is going to measure closer to 30 on a the wide rim. And that's just kind of expected. Like, I think the average consumer doesn't know that though. Yeah. You know, like, like we're all pretty tapped into what happens when you do a wide rim. But if you buy a tire that says 28 millimeters on the side and then you put it on your bike and it measures 31 and yeah. you didn't know that was going to happen and your bike doesn't fit 31, <laughs> then I mean, I know, would say you the might only... be kind of annoyed by that. The only real issues that I would say the most common issues I run into with this were the previous Contis, the GP 4000s, but obviously they weren't tubeless then, but you'd have a 28 mil tire on a modern rim and it would measure 32. Like that's not going to fit or a 25 is going to measure 
28, 29, which is just kind of like kind of mind blowing how out of spec they were. But, um, but most other, I would say most other companies seem more, more consistent, at least like you kind of expect this is what a 28 is going to measure on, on this rim. Right. So, I mean, it, it is getting better, but I mean, overall, this whole, this whole idea of tires not actually measuring out to what it says on the label, whether it be wider or narrower. I mean, it's, it's hugely inconvenient for customers. And I think it, it really highlights a big problem that, that we have right now in terms of tire labeling and measurement in general. I mean, basically, you know, the system that's being used right now, it's, it's super, super antiquated and clearly it's time to overhaul it. And as it turns out, that is actually about to happen. And I recently chatted with Luke Musselman from Goodyear Bicycle Tires to get the skinny on what is actually going on. So let's hear what Luke has to say. All right, today we are talking with Luke Musselman from Goodyear Bicycle Tires and Rubber Kinetics. Luke, thanks for being on the show. Hey, no problem, James. How are you doing? Do you know all things considered, doing pretty well. I mean, can't can't complain a whole lot. Uh, I can complain a little, but no one would listen. Yeah. So. Hopefully the people on here will listen. Maybe, but we'll see. <laughs> More importantly, they are not here to hear about our complaints or my complaints specifically. Uh, we are here to talk about stated versus actual tire width though today. And I actually kind of wanted to have you on this segment specifically because um, you know, even though you and I uh, have known each other for quite a while, I know you've been in the industry for a very long time, but Goodyear specifically is really a new brand in the bicycle tire space. And I feel like you might be looking at this topic with maybe fresher eyes than someone who's been in the game for ages and ages. Um, so definitely wanted to pull you, pull you in and get your, get your take on all this. So, um, I mean, the discrepancy between measured versus stated tire width, it, it's always been an issue for as long as I can remember to some degree, but now that seemingly everyone is trying to cram the biggest possible tires into their bikes. Um, you know, both on-road and off-road, it, it's an even bigger issue now, you know, no pun intended. Yeah. Um, so why is this such a complicated thing right now? Um, I'm, I'm not sure so much that in itself it's complicated. I think we actually need to step back and, and take a second and look at that comment you just made, which is people are trying to put bigger and bigger tires, the biggest possible thing they can fit in their bike safely, which is kind of the key there is safety. Uh, but there's been a lot of changes over the number of years. And I think it really boils down to two, uh, two distinct points. And that is on the mountain bike, you've seen a massive change in geometry uh, over, let's say, the past five years. Um, and then on the road bike, uh, on the roadside, uh, you've seen the implementation of disc brakes across the board. And the implication that has in where we're seeing on the road tire change is it clears up a lot of room around the crown because you no longer have a caliper. So you're no longer limited on tire width. Uh, the other, and so that allows people to run larger tires that they couldn't previously um, and allows you know, just more space. And then also with the advent of um, gravel bikes, which is kind of an extension of cycle, you know, people were riding their cyclocross bikes on gravel roads. Okay. So how do we make this even better for the average user where we're not limited to, let's say 33 millimeters is we want to make something bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, so I think we need to kind of look at from that point of view. Um, also there has been a distinct change, uh, with, uh, rim size also getting larger over the previous couple of years because of the advent of uh, of tubeless, uh, so you can run a wider uh, wider tire and rim combination, especially on the road. Uh, if you go back just what ten years ago, 
the standard road inner rim width was what, 15 millimeters, 13 millimeters. And that's where your 23 or 25 millimeter width tires were designed around. Now everyone, you know, 28s, 30s, 32s are, are fairly common, especially with the advent of tubeless because you're bringing down the kind of the total system weight there. Um, so running that width on tires on a thir 13 or 15 millimeter inner rim, just, you know, it doesn't make sense. Uh, the standards from an inner rim point of view were last updated, formally passed through all the way uh, through the process in around 2015. And there's been a lot of progress since then. That's that's kind of the root of the uh, the issue that you're seeing right now. Right. So basically, you said the, the last time the, you know, and we're going to get to the standard thing in, in a minute, but the last time these standards, standards were updated was, you know, certainly when, you know, the idea of even a 19 millimeter wide road rim was pretty revolutionary. And now that's, yeah. now you could argue that that's almost the norm. I mean, you know, people are riding road rims now, they're 25 millimeters wide. I mean, and, and, and again, we'll, we'll get to whether or not that's a good idea. Um, yeah, that's, but, and that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Right. But, but, but basically the issue right now is that rim width is all over the place and rim width has a pretty big determining factor on how big a tire will actually measure regardless of what's printed on the side. Um, Speaking of what's printed on the side, though, when a tire is marked as a 700 by 28 millimeter, how does that tire size come to be? I mean, how is it determined that that tire is supposed to be 28 millimeters wide? So there's basically there's two measurements uh, that you see on a tire. Um, there is kind of the hot patch label uh, where you have like, let's say that 700 by 28 uh, a lot of times you see a C after that. Uh, the one thing people should realize is C is not a measurement. It is a designation for the interface between the tire and the rim, which C stands for crochet, which is little hook, um, uh, French for little hook. So what that means is the interface between the tire and the rim is designated and there's a design around that, which everyone should follow. But that's where that C comes from. Then you have another uh, measurement in there. You have the tire size designation for that 700 by 25, which would actually be 25622. 622 being the bead diameter, and then 25 being the tire section width. Now, there, when we look at section width, there, um, there's two different understandings of that. Um, you have two different types of tires on the market. And let's try to make this as simple as possible as you have type A tires and type D tires. Uh, I don't know if you, how familiar you are with that. Uh, only no, only as familiar <laughs> with it as, as the information that you had sent to me a couple weeks ago. Okay. So uh, a type A is where the tire section is equal to the overall width. So think like a road tire. So the tread stops before the edge of the section. So that 25622, if you put a caliper on it, when that tire is mounted to the rim, uh, it was designed around. So let's say a 19 or a 17, it's going to measure within that plus minus one millimeter when the tire is left fully inflated for a 24 hour period. And, and that's fully, fully inflated. I mean, at the maximum pressure for a 24 hour period is when uh, you take that size measurement. Uh, now a type D tire is a mountain bike tire. So you measure that casing width again, which is let's say on a mountain bike tire, a 2.25, which would be a 57, uh, 622 for a 29er. Um, if you measure that casing, um, that 2.25, with tire, that casing should be 57 millimeters. Now on a type D tire, you're allowed up 
to an operating maximum uh, overall width code of plus eight millimeters. So that means four millimeters per side so that you can have the tread sit out from the casing that far. So that's why sometimes there is a difference in when you measure the tire, it's how you measure it. Are you measuring the casing width? Are you measuring the widest point of the tread? Is the tire mounted upon, uh, mounted on the rim uh, width that it was designed upon? Or is, are you, you know, plus two millimeters, plus five millimeters? Um, that will definitely change. Um, generally speaking, um, there isn't a, a quick math adjustment that can be made so that you can understand the what your tire will actually measure versus the design width is if I have a tire. Well, actually, be, be, oh, before you get to that though, what, what I want to, yep. what I what, what I want to really nail down now is, um, if, if a tire is marked as a, you know, 2.1 inch or 28 millimeter or 32 millimeter, whatever, my understanding is that th those numbers come to be based on designated ETRTO international standards, correct? Correct. Now, for that tire to actually be that measurement, that has to correspond to a certain designed tire. Or, the tire has to be designed for a certain particular rim width, correct? That is correct. So where does someone determine what the designed rim width is supposed to be for a given tire size? There are uh, some uh, generally accepted standards, but generally speaking, um, if you view the manufacturer's website, they should... Uh, I know we do, we call out that information and what the inner width, design inner rim width is. Um, there is, uh, you can go outside of what kind of the standard is, but you should definitely call that out. And you're seeing more and more manufacturers these days saying it's recommended for a rim width of, let's say 25 to 30 millimeter inner rim for a 2.4 millimeter tire. Um, so, I'm sorry, 2.4 inch tire. Uh, getting my numbers back and forth. Um, so, that's an understanding. You're seeing more and more people present that information so that um, consumers can have an idea of how wide the tire will actually be when mounted on a rim. Um, you do see some variance. Um, you're allowed, you know, a couple of millimeters at the smaller sizes, uh, up to three, four millimeters width in, in in the larger sizes based on the design and a rim width. But um, generally speaking, that's where it's at. Um, the one thing that we got to remember, though, is those numbers are taken when the tire has been fully inflated at the maximum PSI for a 24 hour period. Now, what's important here is that also carries over for both tube type and tubeless. Uh, so a tubeless ready tire, uh, that measurement is actually taken with an inner tube in it. So for consistency purposes and also so it can maintain the air pressure for a 24 maximum air pressure for a 24 hour period. Um, that's well, you're, you're implying that tubeless yeah. ready tires don't always hold air for 24 hours. What do you mean? There are standards, but there is uh, each company has its own standard, but there is no generally global standard for the air retention rate for any given tire. I know what we test to, um, and they should hold fairly well. Should. And, and I will, I will point out to listeners right now, since you don't, you are not privy to the, the, the video conversation that we're having right now, but, but that, that did elicit a little bit of a smirk on Luke's face there. So supposed to be being the operative term there anyway, carry on. Yeah. So, I mean, and then you have kind of that, what's that overall width code, um, that you see like on a mountain bike, which would be, um, let's say 2.25, 2.4. That's 
kind of that overall width code uh, on a road bike tire that's that 700 by 25, 700 by 28. Um, there's one area where you can definitely see the difference between kind of that overall width or the nominal code versus the tire designated code. Uh, and that's on, let's say, a 35 millimeter, um, let's say, gravel tire or transit style tire where the stated width is roughly two millimeters different than the um, that uh, tire designated. So that 35622 may say 700 by 37C. And that's because you're accounting for that two millimeter that tread comes over. So you're allowed up to, uh, I believe it's uh, up to 35 millimeter width tires. You can go up to 1.5 uh, millimeter tread width on each side for a type A. And then for the type D, the mountain bike tire, you can do four millimeters, uh, eight millimeters total uh, width between tread width and uh, section or casing width. Okay. But um, for, for these design rim widths, however, I mean, so I think it's great that Goodyear does designate right on the product page what rim the tire is, you know, sort of designed around or what how that measurement was determined. But for other brands that don't do that, is there, I mean, can it, can whoever just go and pull up an ETRTO chart to see what rim width is supposed to correspond with a particular tire width? Not at this time. That's, you, you just, it's, it's not public. And also it does vary uh, from company to company uh, of what they're trying to optimize. Um, it, uh, it is generally accepted for people who are participants within ETRTO, but um, just so you know, up to, um, just up to, uh, current standards, I believe the maximum you see right now is rim width of 29 millimeters is the maximum inner rim width you see, uh, within the published and fully ratified standards, but that is going to be greatly expanded upon here in the near future. So you were talking about, um, sorry, I, I kind of broke up your, your train of thought a little bit earlier when you were about to talk about this, but, um, even if there is a way for a consumer to determine what the design rim width is for a particular tire that they're looking at, um, once they have that information, is there a rule of thumb that they can go by to figure out how wide that tire should actually be on whatever rim they're planning on using if it's not the design rim width? Yes, actually, it's and it's and it is stated uh, within the guidelines, and that is basically the difference from the design width to the applied width. So. Uh, times 0.4. So if I have, let's say a 25 mil, 700 by 25 or 25 622, that is designed around a 19, has a design in a rim width of 19 millimeters and it is mounted upon, uh, mounted on a 21 millimeter inner rim. What you're seeing there is a difference of two millimeters in the internal rim width. The difference in the, that you're going to see at the casing is 0.4 times the difference. So it's at two millimeters times 0.4, you're gonna see roughly 0.8 millimeters uh, growth in that casing. Now, this, this works really well on road tires. Uh, you do see where that doesn't always hold true on a mountain bike tire, because if you think about how you have casing growth or casing uh, shrinkage, I guess for the lack of a better phrase, um, is where the knobs are on that casing, you could see the tire actually get wider uh, as you increase the rim width, or if the knobs are more up on the on the top side and they're not going over the side of the casing, you could actually see it narrow up a little bit. So it it it, it does change. 
uh, quite a bit there. Um, but that, that generally speaking is that 0.4 times, times the difference gives you the diff, uh, gives you the growth, uh, in section or reduction in, uh, the tires casing width. Are there any consequences if a manufacturer messes up, for example, and, you know, even if they do, let's say, let's say they do intend for a tire to measure 28 millimeters on a 19 millimeter in, inner width, inner rim width, for example, let's just say that that's what they intend. But what happens if a manufacturer messes up somehow? And like, as we hear all the time about, you know, you'll, you'll see, you'll see people talking forums and stuff about how such and such make and model of tire consistently measures small, this one measures big, that sort of thing. What are there any sort of consequences or you know, does anything happen if a manufacturer messes up and it doesn't meet the number that it's supposed to? Well, generally speaking and how we do it is those numbers in this that are then printed, uh, not printed, but are put in the mold in the sidewall of the tire. So they are physically part of a side of a tire. Those are not put in until after the tire has been approved for mass production. The mold is then re-etched with the sizing in it. And, and that is that is standard practice, I believe. I can't speak to every company, but from my understanding, that, that's how it's done across the board. Um, what you do see differences is in variances uh, on the design width. Uh, so, you know, up until, and I think even recently, a 2.25 tire, uh, kind of the, the standard as far as ETRTO goes, I believe is a 19 millimeter inner rim. That was cool when we were both racing Norba races back in the you know late 90s, but that's just, you don't see anyone mounting a 2.25 tire on a 19 millimeter inner rim these days. It's kind of the cross country standard, give or take 25 millimeters, but that, that's kind of the standard. So, you know, what we've done is we've, you know, we've adopted our tread patterns and uh, how they sit on the tire casing accordingly so that we get the, we get the correct size. I mean, that does bring up a, a pretty big issue that we have here. I mean, you know, you do constantly hear complaints among consumers about how there is a lack of standards overall in the bicycle industry for, for so many things. I mean, headsets, bottom brackets, you know, whatever, you name it. Um, or I should say there are too many standards, depending on how you want yeah, to define standards. That's what I was, yeah. um, yep. But for, for this, I mean, it does seem like there is an existing pretty rigidly defined guideline, that being ETRTO, as far as how, how tires and rims are kind of post to work together. Um, Correct. And as much as it's nice that there is relatively little ambiguity there, I mean, we do still run into this issue now of sort of real world practicality, however, because whereas, you know, we, we do have these, these nicely defined guidelines that unfortunately regular people can't access. Um, the issue now is that these the things are moving so fast and things are changing so quickly that these you know, th this tire and rim standard, although pretty nicely and rigidly defined is now so out of date that it's arguably, it, it's arguably not really useful. Um, so my understanding is that there is a pretty comprehensive update coming pretty soon. Um, but do you have a sense as to when that is actually going to happen? And, you know, what, how is it going to be able to keep up with how things are continuing to change, assuming that they do continue to change at a relatively you know, even pace as to where they've been for the last few years. You know, one thing I'll, I'll say is I, I don't think you're going to see the rate of change that we've seen now continue to be maintained. You see, you know, quick changes, quick changes, quick changes, fast growth there. But then as things become settled, they, they become more standard. You know, how long at this point, how long is the average trail tire, most common trail tire been about a 2.4? 
you know, you're seeing roughly a three millimeter difference in uh, changes on the standard kind of road tire. It's, it used to be, you know, everyone raced at 23. Now it's you know, 25, 28. Um, but I think that's definitely, that's definitely going to slow down. Um, I think you're going to see um, the finalization of the standards and the major update be pushed all the way through the process uh, over the next 12 12 to 18 months, I, I think it'll be finalized. I know there's a lot of things happening, especially with uh, straight sidewall uh, or hookless um, that are not currently in place right now, but uh, those are generally to be more understood by the participating companies. And that, and, you know, a lot of people, there are a lot of stakeholders in this process to make sure it's, you know, it's pretty well universally accepted so that we're all working around uh, this. I mean, at the end of the day, um, it, it's very important that, People follow the guidelines um, that you can find, hopefully published on uh, the manufacturer's website for both the tire and for the rim. Um, and then also that we also have continue to have these great conversations with the product managers of the different bike companies so that we can, that um, they have a full understanding of what works well with what works well, what doesn't work well uh, with other things. Because at the end of the day, this is about safety and we wanna make sure that the products that are being made are indeed safe. I had planned on bringing up something else uh, after this little bit here, but now that you bring up the safety, I do want to maybe touch on this a little bit more. I mean, like you said, I mean, the, the whole point of a lot of this stuff is to make sure that the tire and rim interface is secure and safe and you know, tires don't blow off, that sort of thing. Um, it does really feel like kind of the wild west right now, though, however, in terms of not even just rim and tire widths as far as what is designed to go with each other, but also in terms of like bead seat diameters and tire bead stretch and tire bead diameter and, you know, tire bead shape, you know, like, as you mentioned, hooked versus hookless, you know, tire bed shape. I mean, all of this stuff is just all over the place. So, I mean, it, once these, once these guidelines are more established sometime in 12 to eight, 18 months, that sort of thing, do you have a sense as to whether or not people will actually adhere to those guidelines that are put out? Because, I mean, as you said, there is a lot at stake here. There are companies who stand to lose quite a quite a lot of money, depending on what they have to invest to make changes to to you know to adhere to these standards that are coming out. Um, so, I mean, it, it, are things actually going to kind of become more consistent or? you know, is it the sort of thing where there are no, there are no consequences for not adhering to those guidelines and things will just sort of continue as they are? You know, I can't, I can't speak to any other companies, uh, in, that, in their processes, whether they're, you know, their internal processes, their internal testing, but there are, uh, there are testing requirements for, uh, bead stretch. Um, the bead diameter is actually fairly consistent. That hasn't, we haven't seen much of a change there at all. Um, and that, that is definitely consistent. Um, and the, the big thing on, from a safety standpoint is I, the, the recommended widths and the allowable widths for any given tire width, I think you're going to see changes there. Uh, but as far as the interface goes, um, there are not a lot of, not a lot of changes, uh, taking place, uh, from a, from a width, or I'm sorry, from a uh, diameter standpoint of the bead, uh, bead thickness, um, the hook uh, or the crochet interface, 
Um, the bead hump, which is on the flat part of the shelf, the tubeless shelf that the tire bead sits on there. There are not really a lot of changes there. It's just establishing uh, those standards for a wider range, which really just kind of carry through and should be well understood based on what currently is out there. So, I mean, you said that you, obviously you can't speak for, for other companies aside from Goodyear, but um, if Goodyear were to produce a tire, for example, that did not adhere to those ETRTO guidelines for, say, bead diameter. Um, and, and let's just say it still worked and like not, not the sort of thing where it was so small that it couldn't be mounted, whatever, that sort of thing. Um, but let's say, let's say a company willingly veered outside of those guidelines in, in pursuit of something, you know, that they perceived or, you know, felt to be better performance than, than the existing standard. Is there any kind of, uh, I guess, lack of, for lack of a better term, like, like punishment or, you know, kind of penalty that someone would have to pay or, you know, for not adhering to that? Or is it just sort of like a, a marketplace demand uh, sort of thing? So, uh, I, you know, when we make a tire, we have to, you know, we're making a tire that has to be, uh, that has to be used on such a wide variety of rims. So that's why we, we tend to follow, we do follow the ETRTO. Now we do, uh, we do make adjustments in the sizes because currently the established standard doesn't allow for, you know, rim sizes over, you know, tubeless rim sizes over 25 millimeters, which is certainly not the case uh, out there. So we make the adjustments in the tread cap and how the, how the uh, tread cap and where the tread is on the casing of the tire. So it's optimized for a larger, uh, larger rim. But if, it, let's say a hypothetical company wanted to do something that was just outwardly completely different than what's out there, um, they need to step and look at it as a whole system, the tire, in the rim and it should be designated that this rim is only to be used with this particular tire um you know that could be the case I, again we're talking about a hypothetical here and you know can't really can't really speak to that i can only kind of speak to following what you know following the guidelines and making a tire that works within the current acceptable standards okay fair enough um the last thing i wanted to touch on was um you know this idea that you know Currently, we have this, again, pretty rigidly defined, uh, I guess, nomenclature where you have, uh, you know, the the tire section width in millimeters, hyphen, and then the bead seat diameter. So again, like, you know, 25-622, 28-622, 53, you know, 58, whatever. Um, there have been a handful of attempts over the years to kind of change the, the, the accepted naming conventions for tires. Um, like I remember way back in the nineties, you know, bond trigger used to have, you know, 26 by, you know, 54 slash 52, which, which was their method of addressing the idea of, uh, tread width versus casing width. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and all of these, all of these sorts of alternative naming schemes are designed to provide consumers with more information, which I think is great. Um, I mean, none of them really seem to have caught on industry wide for a variety of reasons, but um, you know, now we have yet another one that 3T has just introduced, um, called, you know, wham and ram you know, width as measured and radius as measured, um, with the idea there being, you know, if you have a 28, 700 by 28 millimeter tire, for example, you know, that could be designated as like, you know, wham 19 equals 28 millimeters, which would indicate width as measured on a 19 millimeter internal rim width is 28 millimeters. So in that sense, that, that sort of naming scheme would provide a lot of information to consumers and seemingly reliable. So like 
you know, then like, you know, wham, 21 equals, you know, 20, uh, where's my math here? Like 29 millimeters roughly and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, that, that sort of designation does seem to be like looking at it from a consumer standpoint, that provides a lot more information as far as how I look at it than just a blanket, you know, regular 700 by 28 millimeter naming, naming convention. Um, but right now, obviously only one company is using it. Um, and 3T specifically is using it to, as a way to really determine what tires will fit on, on their bikes. Um, but the, the idea does seem to have merit. And what, I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. I mean, I think it's certainly interesting. Uh, you know, I applaud any company that, you know, puts it out there of trying to make things simpler and easier to understand. Um, with respect to us is, you know, we are going to continue to follow the guidelines. We are going to publish um, um, the interim that the tire is designed around. And we're going to publish uh, what is the size designation, which is, you know, found in the mold pressed into the tire, uh, which is the, you know, the, the section width and nominal rim uh, code diameter. Because the one thing I think step back is if we look at tires in general, they're, you know, all bicycle tires uh, that I'm aware of off the top of my head are biased construction in nature, which means that the casing fabric is at an angle. It's not radial, uh, it's at an angle. So as you increase pressure, I mean, it works basically like a balloon. It's made out of rubber and fabric. It's gonna expand or contract depending on, on the size. So where the sizing are really important is they provide what is the maximum width and service. And that's from a safety standpoint. And um, I can see where other companies, especially complete bike or frame companies are coming in is they're like, well, we need, you know, the first question I, from talking to friends who go into bike shops or friends that work in bike shops is how big a tires can I put on this bike? Well, uh, the frame is designed. You have to have a certain amount of clearance between the frame, a rigid structure and your tire. Um, so that you don't have contact in a, in a crash um, is, you know, that they should have uh, a maximum allowable width of the tire. Um, and then, you know, you should be able to find enough information from the manufacturer that you can look at what that width is uh, of the tire. And what it's supposed to be, and the thing is you have to remember that width is that we're publishing is, is the maximum. And that, because we don't want to have any contact in between the frame uh, or other structural part and the tire. So that tire, you know, a road tire measured at, let's say a maximum uh, inflation pressure is 110 PSI. When was the last time you rode a 700 by 25 at 110 PSI? That's the max, but what, or it's been, been quite a while for me. Yeah. Or let's say a 28 and 90 PSI. That's again, that's the maximum pressure. So that's where the width measurement is taken. You're going to ride that at a lower pressure, which means that tire is not quite as stretched as much. Uh, so that tire will actually be most likely a little bit smaller and it will vary from tire to tire. There's a tolerance of plus minus a millimeter there. Um, so for us, it's to provide the maximum and then people can then know they can safely put that tire on a given a given bike, given wheel set, and they kind of know the implications of increasing the inner width versus you know decreasing the inner width from the what the design inner width of that tire is and what that will what effect that'll have on the tire, so that they can make the they can make the correct choice. Uh, I think with the number of companies following the generally accepted standards ETRTO, which then pushes through to ISO. Um, 
people who are a party to that, they should follow that. That provides kind of the baseline. And I think we as an industry do need, uh, there's always room for improvement in how we communicate this information. And I hope to see that taking place over the next you know, 12 to 18 months as the new standards become uh, completely ratified through the whole process. I mean, the, the, this thing that, the setup that 3T is, is, is proposing, I mean, it doesn't really seem to me like any sort of you know, radical rethink on how a tire should be measured. I mean, there are, there are, it, it, the guidelines certainly aren't nearly as rigidly defined as what you find in ETRTO, for example. Um, you know, mm -hmm. like, there's just not quite as much information out there as far as exactly how those measurements are supposed to be taken. Um, but that said, I mean, it does seem almost like just sort of like a different way of presenting information that, you know, Goodyear, for example, is already putting out there. Um, like if, if you say that you have right on the product page that, you know, it's the tire is this width when measured on this rim and you can apply this kind of correction factor when you change and deviate from that rim width. Um, I mean, that's basically the same thing as what they're talking about here, just sort of with a kind of like a flashier name, right? So like if you, if, you know, if, if you have a good, good year Eagle all season tire that's designated as a 700 by 28 on a 19 millimeter rim, and you say the width goes up by 0.4 millimeters for every increase in millimeter of inner rim width, wouldn't that be the same as saying, you know, wham 19 equals 28 millimeters and then wham 21 equals 29. So, so on and so forth. And wouldn't that, isn't that just sort of an easier way of understanding the information that you already put out there? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a way to interpret it. Uh, that's one way to interpret it from from a single company, um, but other companies may speak in a different language. The end user, the rider, may not look at this one company; they may look at this other company. So it's our it's our purpose is to provide the baseline information so that people can make the correct choice um, uh, for you know for the products you know when they hopefully select a Goodyear bicycle tire. It, it does sound like there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Hopefully, when all of this ETR TO stuff gets nailed down and is updated. Um, I mean, is that sort of what you foresee as being kind of the ultimate solution here as far as, you know, there being consumer confusion uh, as far as what a tire will actually measure out to on a particular rim? Yeah, I mean, I think if there's a universally accepted baseline in the way that one, measurements are calculated, and then also two, how that is communicated uh, on the product itself, uh, then I think consumers can then be empowered as much as possible to then interpret and make the best choice for themselves. All right. Fair enough. I mean, hard, hard to argue with that a whole lot, really. Um, so fingers crossed that all this stuff does get ironed out in the next 12 or 18 months or I, ideally sooner, but, um, well, I guess we'll see when it happens. Um, cool. Well, Luke, thanks very much for the time. I appreciate it as always, always good to chat with you. And, uh, I guess we'll just continue to see what happens in the tire world as things move forward. So thanks again. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. And, uh, have yourself a good one. We'll do you too. All right. So based on what Luke was saying, it, it does sound like things are about to get a lot better or at the very least they're about to be more relevant to what is actually happening in the real world. Um, and I, I certainly agree that there needs to be some level of standardization for how tires are measured and marked and, you know, what fits and what doesn't fit, what's allowed to work, what's safe to work, uh, you know, what works on a hooked versus hookless rim and that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, it still seems like there could be some room for improvement because, you know, my biggest issue with this ETRTO thing, which is, you know, what, what these standards are, um, the, you know, you can see what the tire is supposed to measure on on the, you know, they call it on the, the design rim width. 
but they don't make it easy to find out in most cases what the design rim width is supposed to be. So is that that much better? Like, it just seems like there should still be more information out there. Yeah. I mean, I feel like even if there are new standards, like what's to say people are going to hold to those, right? Like there are standards that have existed for however long and people were like, oh, we're going to do our own design so we don't have to follow that. So like, what's to say Envy or like, we're not going to follow this standard because we have our own tire that is designed how we want to design it. And then like, why are they going to follow the standard? What's there's no one, some bicycle overlord. That's like, you have to use this. Otherwise you can't make this product. That's us. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, it's also like if Envy's doing this, like not saying Envy particularly, but like, are you making things better? Or are you contributing to the problem? Like the thing I think of, like SRAM recently came out with a, a universal derailleur hanger. And there's, let's say there's 200 derailleur hangers already. But, and then they make another one rather than using one of these 200 ones that exist to make a universal one. So you're like, so now there's 200, you're like contributing to the problem rather than solving the problem. So that's kind of how I see this. Like everyone is having how they measure tires is going to be different. Right. Because it, it seems like the only way that this is really going to improve the situation or kind of fix the problem, so to speak, is if, is if there is some sort of you know, compelling force that these, that exists, that, that makes it so that companies want to adhere to this new standard that's coming out. Cause you know, like you said, Zach, I mean, right now, 700 C wheels are supposed to have a 622 millimeter bead seat diameter, you know, plus or minus, I can't remember what the actual tolerance is, but a lot of people don't know that, you know, stands and I guess back in the day, American classic, when they were still around, uh, I think industry nine does this as well, but I mean, a whole bunch of companies when they were trying to make tubeless tires work better, they basically just made their rims bigger and they didn't really talk about it. So yeah. it might say 622 on the label, but it might be like 622.5 or something. And those little small differences in diameter make a huge difference in circumference and how well a tire fits. So like what I would like to see is, I think it'd be great if there is some level of standardization, but it's only gonna hold weight if, if companies are somehow either encouraged to adopt that new standard or penalized if they don't like this you know these envy wheels for example I and mean, supposedly you know i checked with jake pantone from envy and you know these new tires are supposedly compliant with these new etrto guidelines which is great um and you know but it's unclear right now if envy's wheels or anybody's wheels like, it, it's not it's really unclear who is going to be compliant moving forward so like if you were to buy a set of wheels right now like I guess you kind of have to ask, like, are these going to be compliant with the new ETRTO standards so that I know I have a better idea what tires I'm going to be able to run moving forward? It's yeah, a I huge mean, problem. Like maybe I'm just really negative too, but like standards in the bicycle, bicycle industry don't exist. Like, right. Look at, like, so let's say you buy these wheels that they have the right standard of the BC diameter and everything, but then you buy a new bike and in two years they've decided to change the standard of axle. And now these new wheels don't fit on there anymore. Or like, look at bottom brackets, like the word standard doesn't exist. Everyone thinks that they can do it slightly different or better or whatever. And that's why we have 30 different bottom bracket frame like specs. Right. And so even though you have a number, you know, a, a, a 622, you still end up with 622.5. You still end up with 621.5. And I, like, I don't know how, I don't, I don't know any way of sort of forcing companies not to do that. Because they're all they're all acting in their own self interest, right? Like maybe the only way is to is to really develop like I don't know, like I guess if a number of super popular tires, for example, maybe like if you could get if you could if you could have a list and just say, listen, like if you don't if you don't comply to this, you're going to be on a shit list 
where we're going to tell people not to buy your wheels because they're they're going to crash. Their tires are going to fall off. We cannot guarantee that their tires are going to stay on. Like I don't I don't know how else you sort of force the industry to to do what just clearly makes sense, but is not necessarily in their direct self-interest every single time. I mean, I feel like even with tubeless too, though, there's some, like, let's say the rim is made to spec, but then it comes with, let's say these MVs, for example, like it comes with MV rim tape and then you have to take the tires off and the rim tape gets pushed off to the side, which happens almost every time you take a tubeless road tire off. And the bike shop that's working on it doesn't have MV rim tape. So they put on a different rim tape that is a little bit different thickness where they do two layers instead of one or vice versa. And then like all of a sudden the rim that was made to spec is no longer in spec anymore. And I think from personally, I think like tubeless being just sealed by some rim tape over the spoke holes doesn't necessarily seem like the best solution in terms of making standards. Agreed. I liked how the fact <laughs> I'm just random aside. I like how in the, uh, in the DT Swiss, uh, ARC ARC 1100 launch that happened earlier this week. They specifically mentioned the fact that uh, their rims have hooks so your tires won't fall off. <laughs> I, I mentioned I'm, I mentioned that to somebody who's like kind of tangentially a cyclist. Like they ride bikes sometimes, but they're not they're not sort of deep into it like like all of us are. And they were like, "Wait, what? I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> That's I didn't realize that was a thing that like." people made wheels that your tires might fall off of and i was like yeah sometimes i mean not on purpose <laughs> but <laughs> that shouldn't be in question like we sh we shouldn't see marketing from a wheel company that says like these are round <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah right i mean it's like the whole at the end of the day the bicycle industry as a whole whether it's wheels or bikes or whatever like the, at the end of the day it should be how to make this a better experience for everyone not just like i want this to be 0.05% faster. Like what about the beginner cyclists that you, you, they buy a new bike and you get told like, okay, your brakes, they disc now. So they might rub a little bit, but that's normal, but don't get any oil on them. Otherwise they might rub. And then your tires, they're tubeless. So they seal themselves, but maybe they lose some air overnight and leak sealant on the floor. That's totally normal. And it's like all these things that are like marginally making things better for the high performance cyclists, but you're not, not making the cycling experience as a whole easier and more like you're not going to encourage people to get into bikes it, can you imagine trying to navigate wheels and tires for a road bike if you came in not knowing what any of this stuff meant like for example like i was just shopping for truck tires right and like i can never remember what all those little numbers on the side mean 265 75 well, r17 those numbers in but and I, there's a standard exactly but i punched but like i'm like i think it's r16 which means i have a 16 inch rim and i think the second one is the ratio but i can't remember what i have on my truck and anyway i googled it and in like four and a half seconds i figured out exactly what i need and what's going to work and what's not going to work and everything that's going to fit and i'm almost positive that my tires won't fall off pretty sure about that one and like why can't we make this happen for the bike industry yeah. i just don't it's so frustrating again we we just need james wong approved is what we actually, is what, what we actually why need. because because yet again we are demonstrating that uh i, I don't know if this is good this is going to make us having to uh, have to label this podcast as explicit this episode but once we again the, the the bike industry is showing itself that or showing the world that it's a total shit show yeah, I think I already said shit early in the show, so <laughs> explicit shit on the show. Well, show. Well, well, to everyone listening, this was this was your warning. Hopefully, you expected that we there there was going to be a little bit of light profanity in this episode. So we apologize, yep. sort of. Uh, well, what standards can, do? Can, yeah. Can, can we? 
can we talk about something more fun now? Can, can we move on? Yes. Now? I'm, all, I'm all can, fired up over can, here. I'm can we talk about hot in here? Can we talk about <laughs> can we talk about mountain bikes? Heck yeah. Mountain yeah. yes. bikes are fun. All right, let's talk about mountain bikes. So, reason why we're going to talk about mountain bikes, Dave. What do we have for this week's what bike should I buy segment? Dave, what do we have for this week's what bike should I buy segment? Because it sounds like this one's actually coming from your backyard here. It is. So uh, Michael Merriman, uh, Sydney-based, is into some XC Marathon-type mountain biking. Uh, wants to ride with mates and kids. Uh, he's got three to $4,000 and a self-confessed champagne taste beer budget. <laughs> uh, we, we, should, we should point out, this, we we should point out that this is a three to $4,000 Australian dollar budget, not correct, US. And given correct. the given the exchange rates and the value of the Aussie dollar right now, that roughly works out to about 13 cents. <laughs> yep. $27. Uh, he is open to used. He's incredibly tall. He's six foot four. Uh, and he seems to be looking for sort of the the longer travel cross country bikes, so roughly a hundred and twenty millimeter travel bike. Uh, he's listed some preferred bikes, including the Santa Cruz Blur slash Tallboy, the Pivot Mark IV, the Trek Top Fuel, and the Yeti SB100, all of which are well outside of his price point. All right, who wants to go first here? <laughs> you said you're going to win, so let's hear you first. No, no, no. I'm gonna I'm gonna go last. I'm gonna win, so I'm gonna go last. Come on. Dave, Dave still since doing you, research. Dave, since you kicked us off, you kicked us off, and and clearly since he's in Sydney, you you probably know this person. I mean, Sydney's not a big place, right? 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 Uh, oh, there's like forty cyclists in Sydney. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. All right. What what do you think this person should go with? So, being Sydney based, and being that our trails are mostly sandstone and sand, uh, and being that you can absolutely ruin a mountain bike in a single ride here. Uh, I'm not a big fan of used mountain bikes. Um, I, I believe you can get the bargain of the century, but often when you're looking at a premium bike and it's going for a third to a quarter of its retail price, perhaps it's been trashed and you may, uh, you may want to spend a little extra to get something new that you know the history of. Uh, so given that, I'm going to say um, with the three to four thousand Australian dollar budget. I would actually be recommending to look new, uh, to look at new bikes, uh, which kind of limits your range to more the Merida and Giant type of bikes. And for that, uh, yeah, maybe a, a Giant Trance would be good for the rough trails that we have in Sydney, uh, or a Merida 120, a top end spec uh, with an alloy frame. And at least you have a full warranty with that, and you know the history of it, and you won't have to be buying $600 cassettes. Oh, that, that, that's really sad <laughs> to hear that, Dave, because like, you know, he said he has champagne taste and beer budget, and basically what you're saying is he needs that's to have beer, beer, beer taste and beer budget. <laughs> yeah, I'm being a realist on this one. I'm, I'm going to say, yeah, if you, if you find a Santa Cruz Blur or a Pivot Muck uh, in your price point, it's probably so old that the geometry is outdated and it's not worth owning, or it's something's wrong. Uh, and it's good to have a warranty on these things. Interesting. So when you say that bikes get trashed really, really quickly over there, do you mean just yep. drivetrain and brake stuff or like, you know, the forks get destroyed and like, you know, suspension, other suspension components and, you know, suspension pivots and that sort of thing. Like, what are we talking about here? Everything. So yeah, suspension absolutely gets hammered. Um, it's not uncommon to see bikes that are three to six month old with uh, stanchion wear on them. What? Um, 
Yep, it's not uncommon. I've I've done I've had to test bikes in the rain before. I've gone through sets of brake pads in less than ten kilometers on brand new brand new bikes, uh, and then at that point you can feel the bearings and the pivots are crunchy and the bottom brackets are trash. So, um, in if the bikes are ridden in poor conditions around here, they can be completely ruined very quickly. Uh, on top of that, we have, you know, our trails are extremely rough and, and, and technical and steppy, so it's also not uncommon to see cracked frames. I think you should take up road cycling. I'm really selling the idea of living in Sydney <laughs> yeah. right now. Sounds like good trails. Yeah. All right, Kaylee, how's your um, research going? I'm researching so hard over here. Hold on, I need like another two minutes. You want me to go? Yeah. <laughs> While well, Kaylee's researching here. Um, I guess I would start, yeah, I would agree with Dave. Use mountain bikes, not a good idea, unless you're going to, throw in an extra $500 or whatever for full suspension service and probably brake work and all of that. So or you're buying one of my old ones. Yeah. Those are all in perfect condition. Yeah. If you're seeing a nice used mountain bike for not very many dollars, it's getting sold for not very many dollars for a reason. Um, yeah. So I would, yeah. And then with the budget, I would definitely lean towards aluminum. Um, you're going to get the best, yep. best bang for your buck there. And I would say my bike of choice for this, because he's talking about cross country riding, I would suggest basically what I have for my cross country bike, which is an aluminum specialized chisel frame, it's hardtail, put a 120 fork on it, put a dropper post on it, some 2.4 tires, and then whatever drivetrain you can find online for cheap or at your local bike shop or put it all together. And you're going to have a super sweet light bike. It's going to be fun. And like, cause basically any, any full suspension bike in that price point is going to be super heavy and terrible to ride. It's not going to be enjoyable. So if you can have a hardtail for the same price with a dropper and a 120, that makes it pretty fun. And it's going to be like eight pounds lighter than the equivalent price full suspension. Yeah. Worth noting that I would definitely take a dropper post over rear suspension any day, any of, the day of the week. Yeah. Literally like no question in my and mind. And a 120 whatsoever. fork on the hardtail is going to slacken it out a little bit. So you're not going to get thrown over the bars. Yeah. We've had this, we've had this conversation with a friend of ours, Owen, a couple different times a and lot. a lot. <laughs> he, he has a tendency to go over the bars. He he's a crasher he's a yeah. crasher type guy and we're, we're try, trying, trying to explain the other day that like front suspension and the amount of front Maybe suspension we should preface this. owen really wants a, like the 18 pound full suspension world cup racer bike and we're yes. trying to talk him out of it and we're trying to talk him out of it because it's silly and we're trying to explain that like the front end of the bike like the 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 head tube angle and the fork those are designed to keep you upright and rear suspension, all it really does, for the most part, is let you go a little bit faster, generally. Like, it's not going to save you from crashing all that often. Uh, in fact, sometimes it might even make you crash if you, like, have it set up wrong. It bucks you and things like that. But, like, the front of the front of the bike is for steering. Front of the bike is for, therefore, not crashing. And so you sort of focus on that for, like, okay, you want a head tube angle in the 67 to 68, probably, range. And you want a 120 mil fork. And then the back end of the bike, it just kind of follows and so if you if you want to be able to blast through rock gardens then yeah you probably want a little bit of suspension back there but it's mostly just to save your rear tire potentially save your butt a little bit but it's not going to like if you have a dropper post then you can stand up out of the bike exactly so if you have a dropper post you kind of you kind of save that and so that's why i think a hardtail is actually a really a pretty interesting my option my bike like i was describing it's a specialized chisel which is their aluminum frame i have it built up with yeah 120 mil fork and then a mix of Shimano group set and a dropper and some nice wheels. Like it's sub 24 pounds, which is pretty sweet for not very many dollars. 
Um, and it's I also tall, so it's an extra large frame too, which is not the lightest. Um, but yeah, I would put your money on nice wheels and brakes and suspension, but not not the frame. Zach, how tall are you again? Six two. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting option. If you want to go I mean, marathon racing, right? Like, yeah, he's not so, talking about go enduroing. It's true. And, and if the trails are not super rough, then then a hardtail really is going to work. If you really want to pull the trails out, right? super rough. That's what the two fours are for. That's the two four tires are for. Okay, well, okay, well, well, let's go. Let's go full suspension. Here's here is my option. I have no idea how much this bike costs in Australian it's dollars. Way over the budget. <laughs> <laughs> Budgets, you know. What was the guy's name again? What was our Michael Merriment? Michael, Michael, double your budget. Work harder. (laughs) Uh, The Canyon. I'm I'm returning to Canyon because of the price range, and it's just like this bike is way out of the budget. No, it's not. It's not. What's it in the U.S. The Lux CFSL 6.0. Have you picked this bike before for something else? Four grand. Thirty. Thirty. No, no, no. Thirty-four. Thirty-four hundred dollars U.S. All right, that's like nine thousand. That's like nine thousand Australian. (laughs) And we were just talking about head tube angle. You have a Lux. It'll throw you over the handlebars. It, this one has a 120 fork at which uh, every about every 10 mil you add to your front suspension, you slack out the front end by about half a degree. And so that is a much better head tube angle. Head tube angle is 69 and a half, which is still ridiculous. <laughs> still a bit silly. Haley's changing his mind as he's talking nope, about I'm it. Nope, I'm all in. I'm all in on this bike. Canyon Lux CFSL 6.0. So yeah, I had these. I had I've, I've ridden one of these a lot, and uh, it's super fun. It's super fast. I rode one with a hundred mil fork, which okay. is I mean, real I... dumb and real steep and sketchy and terrible. But with a 120 fork, it'd be a really really fun bike. I'm gonna argue Kaylee's point here, and it's only thirty four hundred bucks. And he was on a hardtail the other day, and he said <laughs> this hardtail. Rear suspension that it doesn't have is just as efficient as the suspension on this Canyon Lux that I also yeah. have. And and the guys at the guys at Pink Bike, uh, Sarah Moore and um, and Mike Levy actually just uh, just reviewed that bike and we're not big fans of it. I think it finished last in their field test. Shh. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite you twitchy. You literally said the other day it's your quite twitchy. Is just as efficient. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's it, like it's it it's it's tracked surprisingly well over rough surfaces. The rear end did, but this is a Cannondale. Uh, what am I on? FSI at the moment, and but still, if you want full suspension, you're gonna struggle to find a carbon full suspension bike for anywhere near that price. And it it does come with a 120 fork now, which is a dramatic improvement on the one that I have ridden. So I think it's I think it's great. I think it's perfect. I'm sticking with it. All right, hold on, Kaylee. Just just to uh, just to recap, what what specifically which model Lux did you say he should get again? CFSL six point zero. Hmm. In well, radical it, it, red. It red is, is the fastest is, color. It is out of his budget. I will give you that. It's not dramatically out of his budget. It's forty five fifty Australian, so it's oh, not it's not as bad. Not yeah. terrible, but. It also does not come with a dropper post, which you just said a minute ago oh. is is more so important another, to you like, than rear suspension. Three hundred dollars in there. <laughs> so, Kay- Kaylee, why yeah. do we even ask you these questions? And once again, know. not only are you over well, budget, very again, much you, research. Well, well, I know, but but it, but again, we're in this situation where you're not only over budget, but you also okay. haven't accounted for pedals. This bike doesn't come with pedals. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we, Michael, we can assume he has pedals already. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Kaylee's bike selector research seems to consist of him going to canyon.com <laughs> and then just finding the well, most it's appropriate usually budget. It's usually budget. bikes that are like $3,000. And if I was buying a bike that was like $3,000, that's pretty much where I would go, I think. I mean, like, honestly, you just get so much bike for your buck in that in that case. And I have ridden this bike. And it, yeah, okay. It's a good cross-country race bike. It's a good bike. cross-country race bike. Like, it, it goes real fast. It is not stable and predictable and going to save you when you get into bad situations. But if you're a good bike handler, you can make that thing move. I mean, it is the bike that Matthew Vanderpoel has raced on for two years now, year and it's a half clearly now. clearly the bike there. Yeah. If he can win bike races on it, then, Michael, you can win bike races on it. So, Michael, if you are okay with quote-unquote working harder, as Kelly puts it, and spending, and spending a lot more money than you're planning on, and having a bike that came in last in Pink Bike's last cross-country field test, and does not come with a drop proposal that Kaylee said was essential, then the, Canyon, then the Canyon Lux CFSL 6.0 is clearly the bike for you. It's perfect. At least it's near. Yeah. All right. Well, Perfection. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put forth my pick here. So I'm ready. Uh, now, granted, my, my first pick here was was made in advance of Dave informing us that used bikes in Sydney are a very, very bad idea. So originally I was going to recommend that he maybe try and find himself a used top fuel because mainly because it comes in a double XL size. And I've ridden that well, bike top fuel a lot. just came out like a year ago. There's not going to find a used one yeah, already. Not a well, apparently if they, if they get destroyed in three to six months and some, <laughs> someone may have already gone through one. So he could have gotten one in a really good deal and then spent like, you know, not a whole lot of money on a Shimano Dior drivetrain and had a killer bike. But, that is neither here nor there at this point because it sounds like that is a terrible idea. So you're so, not going to win anymore. Well, no. So instead, what 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 I am recommending, I'm going to I'm I'm going to take Dave's advice to heart here, and I'm actually going to recommend a Santa Cruz Chameleon hardtail yeah. aluminum. It sounds like you're copying me. No, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. No, but with a 120 and a no, dropper? but with. But with <laughs> But with twenty-seven-five plus tires, just oh, because. Oh, definitely don't do that. No, boo. Do you like your bike to feel slow and terrible? Here's the tire for you. <laughs> May I point out that uh, the Sydney sandstone is also sharp. <laughs> Sounds like you're losing, James. Ma- make your point, James. Make your point. <laughs> well, I mean, I was just gonna say, if you get to ride a hardtail, and if you originally wanted full suspension, then you can make up for some of that by at least running a bigger tire. I mean, granted. Two nine wheels, they're bigger, they tend to roll over stuff, but you know, I mean, how how big a tire can you fit on this thing? Like a two four or something like that, I think. You're not gonna win any marathon mountain bike races on a mid fat tire. Maybe you will. No. Yeah. I mean, it'd be super gonna... comfortable. I mean, I've got a bike here with some right now. They it doesn't look fun. Yeah. We were just looking at them. They look terrible. Yeah. No. But yeah. I mean, I like <laughs> I like the chameleon because it's got way more modern geometry than most other hardtails that are out there right now. Um you know, it's it's super long, and he's really tall. Again, he's six four, so he's a couple inches taller than you, Zach. And you know, this bike in an extra large size has almost a four ninety reach, which is nice and long. It's got a really nice slack head tube angle, so that front wheel is way out in front of you, nice and stable. Should be super fun at higher speeds. Uh, and yet, the back end's really short, so it'll be nice and snappy and quick, and handle pretty qu- uh, handle pretty well when you want it to. So, okay, fine. Maybe he's not going to want twenty seven five plus tires. Fine, whatever. Go with the two nine one. That's fine. But either way, I think that bike would work out pretty well. It's Sounds not terribly like expensive. Then. I'm not copying you because yo, you want to go <laughs> with aluminum this, this... hardtail twenty nine er one twenty four dropper post. <sighs> hmm. 
Just just ask oh, for yeah. a bonus at work but, and get a specialized with, Epic Evo. Yeah, or that. Yeah, so big bonus at work or rob yeah. a bank. Yep. Work yes, harder. Because, because, because the, worse the wisdom. Be, because the because the S Works Evo, the S Works Epic Evo that just came out has a price in Australian dollars of what was it, Dave again? Like nineteen thousand dollars or something? Yeah, it's what only nineteen thousand. Yeah. Yes. So we'll just make it an even twenty with pedals. So so by by Kaylee's philosophy, you should work a lot, a Nor lot, a lot harder and get that bike and just, spend nineteen thousand dollars instead of four. Demand a bonus. Say so I'm walking out that door if I don't get nineteen thousand dollar bonus. Mm. Somehow I get the feeling he's gonna be walking out that door. All right. Well <laughs> yeah. all right, I, I'm gonna go so ahead I think and I won that one. I'm gonna go ahead and declare a winner. I, I am going to to declare Zach the winner here. Yes. I'm not. Success. As a Sydney local, a hard tell is a terrible idea. <laughs> People say that about Boulder, too, because it's rocky here as well. I have a lot of fun on my hardtail. Yeah, and when I want to sweet. go ride a really rowdy trail, then I hop on my Enduro bike and yep. go smash rocks. Hashtag hardtails are sweet, bro. A hardtail with a dropper and a 120 is really capable. Yep. Yeah. A hardtail, tires. I, a hardtail with a 100 mil fork and no dropper is terrifying. That's the Cannondale yeah. that I'm on right now, and I'm terrified all yeah. of the time when I ride it. I, like that, I, used, I raced on one of those with 26 inch wheels for a very long time. An 80 mil fork, and probably an 80 mil fork, maybe even 63 for a while. Yeah, and I it was I wasn't terrified at the time, so I've just gone I mean, soft. You had the extra leverage of the bar ends to help yeah. control. That's very true. I had extra, but also I had like 700 mil bars. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe and 680 a, and a 71 <laughs> degree head tube angle and all sorts of horribleness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, hello, Wallace. It's getting bored. On that note, seeing as how, you know, well, I I am still going to declare Zach the winner here, but I probably would say that, Michael, if you are listening to this podcast, I probably would trust the advice of the Sydney local more than the other three of us. So buy the bike that's going to be 38 pounds and have a 100 mil suspension. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Michael, let let us know what you go with. Let us <laughs> yeah. know if we are completely full of crap and absolutely know nothing. Uh, and just you know, follow up with us. Let us know what you get, and let us know how you like it. And we'll see. We'll see who really won. We'll find out. What's the cheapest scalpel? Uh, I'm gonna guess a scalpel SE would SE. be the perfect bike, but yeah, uh, it's a matter of getting one. Or last year's like Epic Evo again, yeah. perfect bike, but. You just don't know what you're getting if you're buying you. I mean, I feel like Trek even, they do a top fuel in an aluminum frame. That could be a pretty cool build. That would be a good bike, yeah. Mm. But the stock build's going to be heavy, which is the problem. Right. Yeah, Yeah, four grand Australian doesn't get you a great dual suspension bike, which is why I suggested a Giant or Merida, because both of them have pretty decent value for money in Oz. Yeah. But yeah. I see, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 4,000 U.S., for a, a, a scalpel carbon SE2, so which which would be a sweet, yeah. which would be a super brand. sweet bike. Like that's that's amazing. Yeah, Blue. poke that's around the right for a, kind of bike. But poke, around for, just... poke around for a deal on something like that. That's mm-hmm. what I think. All right, the used well, bike still, with proprietary more, parts is the answer. Yeah. Moral moral of the story: still, beer taste. Our tails are sweet. Beer budget. <laughs> sorry, sorry, Michael. <laughs> bad news. Bad news for you. All right, should we wrap up? Because it's time for dinner, and I'm hungry. Yeah. Yeah. I missed my CSA.
Oh, you did miss your CSA. You definitely missed your CSA, but it's okay. Your wife is going to go get it for you. My wife went and got it. Uh She went and got our vegetables. Yep. Yep. Well done. Well done. All right. Well, thanks for listening to this week's Nerd Alert podcast. If you liked what you heard, don't just give us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends. Spread it around on your social media channels. All that stuff makes it easier and more likely for us to continue this podcast moving forward. And we would like to keep doing that because it's kind of fun. Even though we don't get to see each other in person, it's still kind of fun razzing each other over a Google Hangout. And we like to do it. So I would like to do it some more. So help us out. Velo Club is good. That's a very convincing ad for Velo Club. (laughs) Very, very convincing. All right. Well, continuing our string of awkward goodbyes, we'll see you in a couple weeks. See ya. (laughs) 